This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. It was the Labour leader's turn to face off against Laura Koonsberg this morning. With Sir Keir Starmer currently in a commanding position, Koonsberg looked back to the 2020 leadership contest when he succeeded Jeremy Corbyn. She asked him to explain why a significant number of his campaign pledges had since fallen by the wayside. Now, when you ran as leader, you said you would end outsourcing yeah. in the NHS. That's out. You said that you would abolish the welfare payment, universal credit. That's out. And one of our viewers, Edmund, wants to know, he says, if Keir Starmer has broken all of his pledges to the Labour Party, how can the country expect to trust a word he says? Well, what how I... can people trust you when you have, you know, explicitly junked promises you made? Well, when I was running for leader, I made pledges which reflected my values. Um, since then, we're now, what, three years on... A lot has changed, as you said at the head of the programme. We've been through COVID. We are still going through uh, an awful conflict in Ukraine. And the Tory government has done huge damage to our economy. What's that and got to do with you ditching a promise to end outsourcing in the NHS? Well, so far as the NHS is concerned, what we've said in the last week or two is we would make more use mm -hmm. of the private sector to clear waiting lists. Some use is being used, uh, is made already. We would make more use of that because we have to clear... Um, the waiting lists, uh, and we're in the worst crisis we've ever seen for the NHS. But do you but want people to trust you, though? Because this is about you making commitments and then changing your mind. Is it important for people to be able to trust what you say? I think, Laura, people will look at a leader of the opposition and say, is that someone who's prepared to take the tough decisions according to the facts as they now are. This wasn't so, my question. My question is, do you think it's important for people to well, be able to trust you? Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course so it is. let's take another one of those promises then. You promised that you would scrap tuition fees. Now, does that promise stand? Well, look, I think the tuition fee system needs to be changed. I don't think it's working. I don't think anybody would say it's working. But looking at the damage that's been done to the economy... Um, Rachel Reeves and I have had to be very clear that we will only make commitments that we can afford at the next general election. So, that so we need to look at that promise again. But I think, Laura, in, in terms of trust, mm -hmm. I'm not sure you're right to assume that the public will say um, that they prefer someone mm -hmm. who sort of dogmatically mm -hmm. insists that whatever was the position before can never change, even when the circumstances have changed. The damage done to our economy is huge. We're going to inherit um, a weakened, damaged economy. Now, we have to be prepared for that. And mm -hmm. that's why I've called for a decade of national renewal. We will but not on, be able to this, do everything but, but we need to do specific. in the first five years of a but, Labour but government. Koonsberg also inquired as to Starmer's position on the thorny issue of gender self-ID after the Scottish Parliament voted to remove many of the barriers and to extend that right to 16 and 17-year-olds. And in Scotland, your party and the SN backed the SNP's attempt to change the law to make it easier for people to change gender without having a medical diagnosis and to do it at 16. Now, you've said you have concerns about that, but do you then, and are you saying this morning, you don't support the law 
that has been introduced in Scotland? Well, we put down amendments which unfortunately didn't carry a but, relation But your MSPs voted for it, Kirsten. I'm asking you really straightforwardly. Yes. The law's been changed in Scotland. There's a separate conversation about whether or not the UK yeah, government might Yeah, my answer, Laura, is I have concerns about the provision in Scotland, in particular uh, the age reduction mm -hmm. to 16, in particular... Um, the rejection of our amendment in relation to the Equalities Act. So but across the whole of the area, I think we should modernise the law and I think we need a respectful debate that recognises um, you know, the different arguments that are being made. At the moment, this is just treated as a political football from start to finish. And I don't think that actually advances the cause of anyone. And, and we're, and that, but, but that's why also I think people want to know really clearly what your position is rather than having... Modernise the legislation to take out the indignities. But do you therefore not back this happening at 16? It sounds to me that's what you, what you are saying. You would not agree that you are old enough at the age of 16. No, I don't, I don't think you are. You don't think you are at 16. OK, that's clear. Would you, if you were Prime Minister, therefore, as the government is considering doing, would you block the legislation that Scotland has passed? Well, the government's floated some ideas about what it might do. We haven't seen that yet. I think they're taking more legal advice. So I'll wait and see what the government actually says in relation to that. Starmer also elaborated on his reasons for wanting to reform the National Health Service. You and your team have been, you know, throwing some punches on this recently, or even on the front page of The Telegraph, yes. a conservative paper this morning, uh, talking about the need for a reform, but also using some pretty choice language. You talk about bureaucratic nonsense. You talk about mundane inconvenience, mind-boggling wastes of time and money. Now, that's, that's not normally how we're accustomed to hearing Labour leaders talk about the health service. But when it comes to sorting things out, is anything off the table for you? Well, no, we want to look at all sorts of reform. But, Laura, the reason I want to reform the health service is because I want to preserve it. I think if we don't um, reform the health service, we will be in managed decline. Um, we are, the, the health service is in the worst position it's been in its entire history under the, uh, under the Tories. So we have to, of course, fix the immediate mm. problem. But in the long term, we have to recognise we need change. But that's Partly very interesting. it's that bureaucracy. Anybody who's been on the 8 o'clock call trying to get a GP appointment knows exactly what I'm talking but about. That's very but interesting partly it's also summer. we're living longer. We need a preventative approach. Mm -hmm. We need intervention. That, that, you know, it will always have to be free at the point of use. It, course should be a public service but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use effectively the but, private sector as well. But that's very interesting you say nothing is on the off the table but it still must be free at the point of use. Can you ever see a changing a, cha a way to the funding operates? Some people say actually we should move to a social insurance kind of model. No look free at the point of use is the founding principle for the NHS and it's absolutely fundamental to me but my strong view... I, I've been a reformer of public services for a very long time. I obviously ran a public service for five years, the Crown Prosecution yeah. Service, and I could see that we needed to reform. And we did reform. We made huge changes when I was director of public prosecutions. There will always be people who say, don't change, keep it as it is. But actually, it's only those people who are bold enough, courageous enough to change our public services that genuinely believe in our public services. Koonsberg also spoke to the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, amid ongoing industrial unrest on the railways. She asked him if there was some light at the end of the tunnel. Can you, though, confirm what has been <clears throat> widely reported is that there is a higher pay offer that's been put on the table? And I, and I ask this, I know you won't want to confirm specific detail, but can you confirm that more money 
has been put on the table. That's been widely reported, Mark Harper. Well, look, I made sure when I met, after I met the trade union leaders that there was a, a, a better deal uh, on so, the yes. table for rail workers. Um, but remember, there's, a, there's another side to it, which I think we've talked about mm -hmm. before, which is also it's important that we get generational reform, mm -hmm. both on the maintenance side of the operation for network rail, but also for the, the rail companies. I want a proper seven-day railway mm -hmm. where you don't have to run a rail service by depending on the goodwill of people turning up on their days off. I want a reliable railway mm -hmm. seven days a week that passengers can count on mm -hmm. um, and that's that way we'll be able to recover some of the reduction in volume of passengers that we've seen since the pandemic. But with that desire for reform and what I think you've confirmed is more money on the table again are you optimistic that there could be a deal this week? Well look I hope there'll be a deal. Um, I'm not going to put an artificial timetable on it. I think as soon as you start putting artificial deadlines on things, mm -hmm. you tend to end up with a bad deal. But look, mm -hmm. I think both the companies and the rail unions are keen to reach an agreement, but we've got to see if they can hammer out, hammer out the detail. But that's for them to do. That I facilitated you know, an offer. I've mm -hmm. brought the two sides together with the rail minister. He's been having regular meetings to make sure that we've got a good process. And it's for the two sides now to, to hammer out a deal and try and get somewhere where, where they can agree. Sophie Ridge asked Harper about the case of Ali Reza Akbari, the British-Iranian dual national who has been executed by the Iranian government on charges of spying. Iran uh, has executed a British-Iranian national after accusing him of spying for the UK. Now, you've announced some pretty limited sanctions. You've temporarily withdrawn Britain's ambassador to Iran for further consultations. Is that it? Well, look, the Foreign Secretary was very strong in the language that he used about the, language, the brutal yeah. killing of Mr Akbari. And obviously our thoughts are with his family. Um, we've recalled the ambassador for consultations and I think the Foreign Secretary is going to call in the Iranian charge d'affaires, their most senior diplomatic um, official in the UK, to make our views very clear to the Iranian government. And I know the Foreign Secretary is going to be thinking about what more we can do, uh, but we've made our position very clear in the strongest possible terms um, about this brutal act. And it just shows up, I think, the sort of regime um, uh, that uh, the Iranian government is. What, what kind of regime are they then? Well, they're a regime that, that has treated one of their own citizens, a dual national, uh, in this incredibly brutal way. And that's not acceptable, which is why, as I said, the Foreign well, Secretary made the British government's uh, views very, very clear indeed. Both the Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister uh, made very clear that this was a brutal act um, and that we're going to take further steps. You are going to take further steps then? We're going to think about what more we can do um, and using our diplomatic influence around the world to make it very clear to the Iranians that this sort of uh, terrible behaviour is unacceptable. We've, we're opposed to the death penalty in all circumstances and we condemn this brutal act. And finally, on GB News, Camilla Tomini asked the former Speaker John Burko about last year's findings from a Commons report into his conduct. I've made my fair share of mistakes, but I don't believe that I've bullied anyone in any way, anywhere, at any time. And when it was suggested that I had lied, many things have been said about me over the years, but not that I'm other than straightforward and candid. I haven't lied about anything, and I don't believe that I bullied anyone. I think perhaps the most significant thing to say is this. It was an amateurish, ramshackle, hopelessly flawed process of investigation undertaken into me and the most 
important point resulting from it yes. is that those historic investigations of matters going back 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years immediately ceased after my case. So everybody now is capable of being investigated only if a complaint is made within 12 months. I had people making allegations about what I did or didn't say unwitnessed in a room a decade or more earlier. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Matthew Taylor. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffeehouse Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>